Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OB-GYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Hi, welcome to Sky Women. We're so glad that you joined us today. I have with me Dr. Beth England, who is a breast surgeon in Plano, Texas. And Dr. England, please introduce yourself. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today. Yes, I'm a breast surgeon in Plano, Texas. I've been here since 2006, finished training before that. <laughs> Don't like adding up the numbers. My practice is called Complete Breast Care. And so breast lumps, breast cyst, cancer, breast pain, genetics. So all of the breast health related issues I help take care of. And you have a special interest because I was reading in your bio that you helped to develop with UT Southwestern and THR and HCA and Baylor Scott and White all collectively. Y'all have a conference every year. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. It was probably back in 2009, there was not a lot of resources for local women who had a gene mutation, mainly back then it was just BRCA1 and 2, and worked with some of the genetic counselors at Southwestern, and we kind of pulled resources at the other hospitals, plus some industry sponsors to have a free meeting. And it was in between September and October, because that's ovarian cancer awareness and to breast cancer awareness. And so local experts surgeons, plastic surgeons, oncologists, dietitians, all kind of get together and give information. Psychologists for the part of uh, support, you know, how do you tell your boyfriend? How do you tell your colleagues that you have a gene? Things like that. Okay. Interesting. And this is so personal to you because of your history. Can you share that with us? Yes. I'm adopted. And so kind of got a little anxious about genetic history and my own health and kids. And so I went ahead and did genetic testing, the panel genetic testing, the prices have gone down significantly. And so I went ahead and did it and turned out I have a BRIP1 mutation. That's a gene that increases ovarian cancer risk above general population. There's thoughts of breast cancer risk, but it seems to be mainly ovarian cancer and something I would never would have known about. And so can now decide what to do about it. Right, right. Okay, so let's back it up a little bit and just remind everyone that in the U.S., one in eight women develop breast cancer. The breast cancer mortality rates have decreased substantially in the last 50 years because we were detecting earlier and have good treatments, right? And our main factors for breast cancer are being female, right? 99% of the cases of breast cancer are in women. And what are the breast cancer risk factors? You touched on the family history, but what specifically in our family history should we be looking at that would make a woman higher risk? Family yes. history and breast cancer genes seem to be related to maybe 10, 15% of breast cancer diagnoses. And so some people do get kind of complacent. I have no family history. I'm not going to get breast cancer. Doesn't matter if I skip a mammogram, but that isn't true. The other 85% of women pop up with a breast cancer and can't, we can't really figure out why. So other risk factors would be later pregnancy, you right. know, after the 30, which is pretty common these days. Never having a pregnancy, that's another risk factor. 
obesity can be, alcohol can be. So those are risk factors for just getting a breast cancer diagnosis. Right. And in terms of the family history, it's not just a history of breast cancer, but also ovarian cancer and other hereditary cancers like prostate and pancreatic, correct? Exactly. Exactly. You think of breast cancer, but ovarian cancer is a big marker. Pancreatic cancer is kind of a newer one that we know is can be linked. Early onset of prostate cancer is a big one. Somebody who has two cancer diagnoses, breast cancer diagnoses, you know, one on the right breast, one on the left breast, someone who has breast and ovarian cancer. In you know, one person, those are all big risk factors. Ashkenazi Jewish people have a higher risk. There's three genes that are more common if you're Ashkenazi Jewish. And so that can really be a little more of a, of a you know, thing to look for, to be aware. Right, right. And our goal of screening is to detect cancer in the preclinical disease, right? Like when we're actually healthy, before we have those symptoms, before we have that adverse outcomes and our survival is you know, dismal, right? We want to detect these early. And so what are your thoughts on the genetic testing and if that should be done in a general OB-GYN office or should they be going and having more detailed counseling with a genetic counselor? It all, I think the genetic counselors are amazing. They have, you know, master's level in genetics and they, you know, can dive down into the specific little mutations, the letters and numbers that are the mutation. But potentially the physicians, the primary care doctors, the OBGYNs can kind of be more of the screening and do a lot of the testing if someone is comfortable with that. Because the majority of time the test is going to be negative. They still might be high risk because obviously you did a test and they've got some family history. I tend to use the genetic counselors if there's a positive mutation, obviously you've helped right. plan what to do, or if there's a variant, sometimes there's a little bit of a gray area. So we send to the genetic counselors for that too. If someone's very anxious and really needs more information before testing, then yeah. the genetic counselors. Yeah. And the thing I've noticed is that the companies who have the genetic testing, they have genetic counselors on staff so that if you do have a positive, they're walking the patient through that. Correct. Correct. They can do online Zoom meetings too and explain some of that exactly. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So breast screening for average risk women. What are your recommendations? Well, you know, there's a lot of recommendations out there and some of them are not to do it until 50 and maybe every other year until 60. Uh, the, the guidelines are varied. I still think starting at 40 makes complete sense. Family history, then the recommendations are maybe 10 years before the youngest person in the family with breast cancer. Yes. So if your mom had breast cancer at 45, you should start at 35. But I completely disagree with some of these guidelines that push screening back. So I would say start at 40 and do yearly until you're not able to get to the mammogram, you know. <laughs> machine. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I've seen some recommendations that are like age 75, right? Where they're saying like, maybe you don't have to have mammograms anymore. It could be shared decision-making. Right. Right. And you know, everyone that would be a shared decision-making. You're exactly right. Because some people are 90 and so healthy and vibrant. Why would you stop doing mammograms when they could have a small surgery, maybe avoid radiation and not have any further issues. So if someone's healthy, get your mammogram. 
Right. Agree. And so, and I want to clarify just for the listeners, shared decision-making between a patient and a physician is where you share information, you express your treatment preferences after you've been given the information, and then you agree on a treatment plan collectively, right? It's not a one-sided decision. Correct. Correct. Yes. yes. Information from whoever you feel comfortable with physician-wise and, and going from there. Okay. So... 3D mammogram, MRI, patients are asking these questions all the time. What are your recommendations? Here, at least in this area, every mammography site is 3D. I, I guess I can't say every, but everyone. Most. Most, a large, large, large portion are. And those really do see through the dense tissue. They are finding four and five millimeter cancers that you just can't see on the, on the digital mammogram, you know, right yeah. next to it, even knowing where to look. So for sure, do a 3D mammography. Now it's covered by uh, Medicare over the past maybe five years and in all insurances really as well because they know right. it saves them money. Yeah. Now, MRI is a little more costly. They do have criteria, insurance companies do, and, and usually it's related to risk, genetic risk, risk from other factors such as family history or prior biopsies. So those are a little harder to get you know, covered by insurance, but definitely give some information when the risk is higher enough that you need that information. Right. And the breast imaging helps not only for us to get a diagnosis or know exactly where to look, like essentially you're going to have to have a biopsy if something comes back abnormal and we're suspicious, correct? And that's where you yeah. come in. Correct, correct. Usually the radiologists do the biopsies first. Most locations, a needle biopsy with ultrasound guidance, or if there's calcifications or something very small, it's stereotactic guidance. But they do the actual biopsy and then come over to the breast surgeon to say, does it need to be removed? Can we observe it? You know, what, what's next? Okay, okay. And what are, is your thought about self-breast exam or self breast awareness, which is what we really teach now, and the clinical breast exam. Yes. Now that is hard because some women have very dense breast tissue. There's lumps everywhere. And if they really did an exam, you know, once a week, once a month, they'd, they'd be more anxious potentially. So I usually try and explain, you know, be aware, even women who have dense breasts and say they have lumpy breasts all the time, they'll come in saying, this feels different. This right. lump didn't feel like all my other ones. So it's being aware of your breast kind of every now and then do a breast exam, look in the mirror every now and then too, but not quite as regimented as we used to maybe teach doing it. Right, right, right. right. I can tell you that a large majority of the breast cancers that I've identified in my practice have been from patients who maybe had a normal mammogram or a normal clinical breast exam. And six months into the year, they're alerting me that, hey, this is different. Something has changed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I always listen to them when they say that, you you know, it's somebody say, oh, it's just a cyst, but an ultrasound can tell a cyst from a cancer. So I tend to listen to the patients when they say something's different because obviously right. they're there all the time. Right. So breast density, you mentioned that earlier, and you, you said that the 3D mammography really does well at visualizing even dense breast. Yes, okay. nothing's perfect, but it does a better job than anything we've had so far. Okay, awesome. Awesome. So most patients should be having, being risked, right, uh, assessed for their risk of um, breast cancer, being at an elevated risk is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> like, when do we identify them as a high-risk woman and what type of testing does the high-risk woman need? 
So if someone is found to have a gene mutation, insurance covers MRIs for sure, and those recommendations are mammogram, and then six months later, MRI, and then six months later, mammogram, and, and keep going on that plan. Um, atypical cells on a needle biopsy also increase the risk of breast cancer, maybe not as high as BRCA gene mutations, but still over general risk significantly. Insurance covers MRIs, and that's a smart idea as well to screen because atypical cells increase your risk of a breast cancer as well. Okay. And there's different calculators, calculators we can use that put in family history and atypia and age and things to kind of give us a number. And if the risk is above 20%, then a higher risk screening is indicated. Right. Okay. Now, patient has a suspicious lump. They've had a biopsy and it's shown to be cancer and they're coming to see you for evaluation. And I'm sure you're probably getting, am I a candidate for a lumpectomy or do I need a mastectomy? Breast cancer is so varied in the treatment. You know, five different women will have five different things done, whether it's surgery and chemo and radiation or not, or surgery and nothing. So to be a candidate for lumpectomy usually needs to be small enough um, in relation to the breast size. So a larger area of calcifications that are malignant or a larger mass, then we think probably need mastectomy. If the cancer involves the nipple or is right behind the nipple or there's bloody discharge, you know, we're removing the nipple with the lumpectomy and that is essentially, you know, very close to a mastectomy. Right. So chemo even comes into play with this, a large cancer. Sometimes we want to shrink anyway. It's large and maybe aggressive. We do chemotherapy first, neoadjuvant chemo, which sounds really strange to leave a cancer there and, and then do chemo, but then that can shrink it down to a manageable size where lumpectomy then becomes an option again. I see. Okay. Some of that depends on the biology of the tumor, if chemo's necessary, and if it was, would we do it first to shrink it? But that's sometimes... Right, conscious. right. So there's a lot of complexity to this, and what I'm hearing you say is that treatment is unique and tailored to the specifics of the patient's diagnosis and size of the breast and size of the lesion and mm. type of lesion, like all of the things kind of have to come into play. Exactly. And then there's personal choice too, because someone want to spare the breast no matter what. I mean, I'm kind of saying, well, this is a little larger tumor. You know, you might not be happy with the cosmetic outcome. And it's amazing the body sometimes just fixes it and everything looks fine. Whereas another woman have a small cancer and say, you know, I can't handle this risk. I've got young children. You know, I want a double mastectomy. So right. it's a lot putting into the decision. Right. So again, it's even shared decision-making there. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. I'm sure patients probably ask you, do I need any other tests before surgery? With a cancer diagnosis, I almost, I wouldn't say always, but a large portion of the time I do an MRI a little bit based on breast density because sometimes the MRI will give us a lot more information and it will evaluate the other breast. Right. So sometimes that'll be helpful. Based on stage, a larger cancer, one that's already spread to lymph nodes, sometimes they get things like CAT scans or PET scans. But an earlier stage, stage one, stage zero even, rarely need the more advanced imaging, the CAT scans, the PET scans. There's a fair amount of radiation in those and maybe avoid it if you don't need it. Okay. So you're doing the breast surgery and then whenever they need reconstruction, you're working collaboratively with the plastic surgeon. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. 
So if someone is considering reconstruction, they'll see the plastic surgeon to help determine, you know, incisions, what's going to look better later on. The plastic surgeon's focusing completely on cosmetic look and outcome. And then I'm focusing on getting the cancer out, getting the at-risk tissue out. So it's very collaborative again in that part of a part of things. And sometimes we can do nipple sparing mastectomy. Sometimes we can't, you know, there's two parts to that decision as well. Right. Right. Okay. So I have a couple of questions in regards to just healing after breast surgery. Like what are your best tips and recommendations for women who have had breast surgery? Usually there's a little bit of time between diagnosis and, and surgery. A couple weeks, three, four weeks. I mean, it seems like a long time. It can be shorter. But in that time, I'll usually suggest maybe, you know, eat a little better, a little more veggies, make sure you have good protein sources in your diet, maybe take a multivitamin, you know, um, just to help the body heal. And after surgery, kind of the same thing. A little bit of walking really helps as much as you feel trying to get the proteins and the veggies and the multivitamins in there, even if you don't really feel like eating those things. And then support after any breast surgery, even if it's a breast reduction, which I don't do, but support wearing a bra, sleeping in a bra really helps gravity not cause problems, not cause swelling. And, and therefore there's can be very little pain. I see. Okay. I thought when you were saying support, you were going to be talking about emotional support, <laughs> psychological support. support, that too, right? But we yes, got to support, yes, very important, support the girls. <laughs> yes, support the girls at Comfy Bra, sleep in a bra, which can be, you know, horribly, you know, not a good thought daily, but definitely helps after breast surgery. Right, right. Well, and they've made so many comfortable like bralettes, you know, things that you can wear around the house that'll offer enough support, but still be comfy that there are options for sure. Very, very okay. much. Okay. Okay. Somebody has had a bilateral mastectomy. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they did not get reconstruction. What type of screening, if any, do they need going forward? Well, either um, if someone's had a mastectomy, they really don't need mammograms anymore, whether there's reconstruction or not, but definitely without reconstruction, they're flat. There's a movement, more acceptance of going flat, but it really would be physical exam. They would get used to what a scar tissue and normal lumps and, but they should have a, at least a yearly exam after mastectomy to make sure there's, there's nothing changing. Right. And that can be done with their general OBGYN or do they need to come see the breast surgeon? You know, usually in all different follow-up plans seem to be, you know, surgeon dependent, but I usually do an exam every six months to see for the first two or three years just right. to get used to the scar tissue and all of that, and then spread out to yearly. Usually at the five-year mark, the gynecologist is very competent and does lots and lots of breast exams. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so then follow up, follow up there. You know, some women don't see the gynecologist anymore, maybe, or their internist doesn't do breast exams. And so then I'll continue to see them yearly. You know, they should have a breast exam once a year. Right. A physician, a PA, a nurse practitioner. Yes. Right. Well, I love that you brought up, you know, your with your practice being called Complete Breast Health, is that right? And I saw in your bio that you're vegan and you're bringing up more of the lifestyle type things that can help us to live a healthier life and to have healthier genes altogether so that we're not developing cancer, such as eating more plants, right? Yes, very yeah. much so. There's getting to be a lot of data out there that vegans or vegetarians seem to have less 
cancer risk in general. Don't have to maybe go as extreme, but meatless Mondays, you know, things like that. Adding more plants into the diet can really help. Yeah. How long have you been a vegan? Well, about three years. I was kind of eating a little bit the first two years, but this last year I've been very diligent about it. Yeah. it is a learning process, especially when you grow up in the South and with meat and potatoes, right? Exactly. <laughs> a learning process and cheese. Yeah. It's a hard thing to give up. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> okay. I um, absolutely want to ask you about this because I get this question all the time and women get worried about vaginal estrogen after having breast cancer. And I believe vaginal estrogen is safe for everyone. <laughs> so yeah. give me your thoughts. Yes. And the reason you're asking, I just kind of for the listeners is, once you have a breast cancer, if it's fed by estrogen or not, we really suggest not taking any estrogen. I mean, there's, you know, hot flashes can be manageable, but vaginal dryness is a big side effect, especially if you're taking one of the anti-estrogen medications to prevent your cancer recurrence. I mean, very uncomfortable vaginal dryness. And I agree, vaginal estrogen is safe. It doesn't seem to get absorbed, you know, systemically. So I usually suggest maybe the lowest dose to relieve the symptoms, but I do think it's safe for sure. Awesome. That's wonderful news. (laughs) Yes. Whether it's intimacy or comfort reasons, you know, yes. Right. Okay. What about progesterone IUD? Say somebody had breast cancer young, we're five years out, there's been no recurrence, but they've got heavy menstrual bleeding and they really don't want to have a surgery. That's where I get a little, I'd be a little afraid of that. I mean, I I don't know how much is absorbed from those, but it is local treatment. That's when I'd be asking my gynecologist friend, what do you think? Progesterone sometimes is thought of maybe the culprit in causing breast cancer, maybe a little bit more than estrogen. So I'd be a little wary, but that would be that shared decision-making you mentioned earlier. How bad are your symptoms? Can we try anything else? And knowing the risk, then deciding what is the best way to manage it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I love collaborating. I love educating our patients and October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And so we want to make sure that we're getting good information out. Tell our listeners where they can find you. Well, I actually opened up a a second satellite office, but my main office is on Coyton 15th. It's next to Medical City Plano, next to the Solis Mammography Center, next to Medical City Plano. So kind of convenient. Convenient, yes. Yeah, it's very convenient. And then I've opened a second office next to Presby Plano, just upstairs from their Breast Imaging Center. So available there every day that I'm not operating, mainly operating Tuesday, Fridays. So they're in the office the other days. Okay, very good. And you're also a Steelers football fan and you like Zumba and you have two sons. Is that right? That is correct. I just (laughs) finished Zumba this morning, a little bit of a short day and yes, football season starts. So I'll be wearing my Steeler hat in the OR and and (laughs) my patients are are used to it, you know. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) They don't hold it against me. (laughs) And how old are your boys? Uh, Well, 17 and 20. So okay. Young adults. Yes. (laughs) Very well. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us and educating us today. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, Sky community. Thank you for listening to another episode. This episode was sponsored by Sky Women's Health. As a reminder, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and we help relieve back pain and pelvic pain in pregnancy and beyond. If you are pregnant and having pain and you feel like you have no reliable way to relieve it, 
Look us up at skywomenshealth.com, request an appointment, and we'll call to get you scheduled. As a board-certified OB-GYN with a Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship, I help you realign with hands-on drug-free treatment and relieve pain on the spot without medication. We'll help you maintain these results through your pregnancy and postpartum period. Every pregnant person deserves this, and we are so excited to serve you. You can find us on our website, as mentioned, or on social at Sky Women's Health, or you can call the office at 817-915-9803. That's it for today. Until next week, be well.